Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. We are doing a very special episode this week in which we will focus on the newly resurrected uh, Arrested Development uh, which came back last week for its season four after an absence of seven years. Is that right Ed? Yeah, uh, went off the air in 2006, early 2006 where the last few episodes were aired up against the Olympics um, which uh, didn't help it. Uh, no. And uh, you know, uh, aired on Fox from two thousand and three, two thousand and six. Um, everyone was clamouring for it to come back for pretty much the entirety of that time. Um, pretty much as soon as it went off the air, and even when the show was still on the air, people were uh, trying to get it saved because I think everyone knew it wasn't long for this world. Mm. Uh, and then um, about two years ago. Um, it was confirmed by the creator Mitch Hurwitz that he was going to do more episodes uh, on Netflix. Yeah, he was gonna. He w- he'd been uh, ordered for ten episodes, and he was going to do ten episodes in the very much the same style as the original three series that aired on Fox, a kind of twenty-two minute uh, thing. But then, after a while, he decided to change things up, mostly through necessity, the fact that he couldn't get all his cast together for. Um, that period of time to do it so he decided to make uh, 15 episodes which range between 28 minutes and 35 minutes and each episode focusing on a different character so the new season of Rush Development which if you haven't seen it yet season 4 um, don't listen any further to this because we're going to spoil the shit out of it so you know just walk away now nothing to see and we won't hold any hard feelings against you but um yeah this new approach to it is you know very different very bold um with all the all the shows being released at once on netflix as as is the one of hemlock grove and house of cards before it um we got a very very different sitcom a very very different kind of uh version of arrested development um big question Ed, is, uh, did the new structure work? Uh, I think it did, but it only really became apparent that it worked once I'd watched all 15 of them, because I think for, certainly for the first couple of episodes, there was some, there was a lot of funny stuff, but it all felt a little bit, I don't know, sort of scattershot, mm-hmm. because obviously there were only a handful of scenes in which the entire cast was together, sort of the scenes where they are in... Lucille's uh, penthouse um, after her or prior to her trial uh, in a uh, under maritime law in a seafood bar um, and uh, so the rest of the time it was as you say focusing on one character who occasionally would kind of brush up, uh, brush up against other characters over the course of their story but largely would kind of not be uh, Involved, they didn't tend to like follow multiple plot lines in a single episode, and mm. that obviously is quite a different vibe to the original show, which used to try and cram in sort of five or six plot lines in any given single episode. Um, so yeah, so it was it felt very different, and in the early going, it kind of felt because the the episode, the season was structured in a very non-linear way; it kept jumping around in time, and it. it became it was very difficult for a lot of it to kind of keep track of when and where things were happening and what was happening in relation to other stuff and it was there was lots of information that would not be filled in until later on in the season so once you until you got to the point where the picture was starting to take shape it kind of for me it felt really sort of weird and ungainly hmm. 
Um, how did you watch the show in the sense that when they were released all at once uh, a week ago uh, now, or six days ago, um, they were all released to us at once. Did you devour them all in one sitting, or did you break it up a little bit? I broke it up a little bit, but it was still in basically three sittings. It's like I watched two episodes on Monday before I had to go into work, um, and then uh, I had the Tuesday off, so uh, I basically watched sort of five episodes in the morning and then eight episodes in the evening. Wow. And just so, I, so it was over the course of like three sittings over two days, basically. Yeah, I did it um, seven episodes straight through from the beginning. Um, then I gave it a day and then watched uh, the next seven episodes, which left me with just the final episode to watch on the last day. Um, so yeah, I it wasn't a binge. It kind of was. <laughs> but it, it was it was not the, the... Some people did it straight through all in one go. I mean, it's eight hours, isn't it, I think, in total? Yeah, it's about eight hours. So if you'd started at midnight on... Sunday when they became avail- available there were some people who had finished by sort of 8 or 9 the following morning yeah so yeah. by the time by the time like I woke up on Sunday uh, people were already kind of like offering their opinions on the entire season and you know critics were writing up uh, sort of summations of the whole season before a lot of people had a chance to see it which was kind of strange it's safe to say that we're both fans of the show, Ed. How did you come to it in the first instance? Uh, I came to it in quite early on. I remember when I was at uni catching the like 17th or 18th episode of the first season as it was airing on BBC Two and just kind of being slightly lost but also really entertained by it. So I, I sort of watched the end of that season and then just kind of waited kind of excitedly for the first season to come out on DVD and no one seemed to know what it was in real life but you know obviously there were people on the internet who knew what it was and sort of I knew people in America who had watched all of it and they were like yeah you've got to get there you've got to catch up on this it's great and so basically got the DVDs watched the entirety of the first season in a weekend and just basically it became one of those shows like The Simpsons or Futurama which was if I had like a day free or if I was trying to distract myself from writing essays I just sit there and just watch them over and over again. But like the first two seasons, I've probably watched sort of twenty times over over the years, just constantly watching them over and over. How about you? Wow. How did you kind of come to it? Uh, I, I remember catching the uh, Maggie Liza episodes, and obviously I recognised her from Seinfeld, and um, then kind of watched a few again, like yourself. I was kind of lost with it, um, but I remember the the joke where he takes her guide dog to the vet and it walks off the end of the table straight into the dustbin uh, <laughs> and I remember thinking this is my kind of show um, and then I kind of watched them on and off and kind of liked it and then I think years later got the first season on DVD watched and filled in all the blanks then got immediately got the second season and then just as I finished that second season the third season came out and then I got that on DVD and then after that I was pretty much kind of sold as a fan I, I, I try and kind of watch them Watch all three once a year. Uh, mm. I, I kind of there's there's quite a few shows that I do that with, and 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 that's one of them. That's kind of how highly I hold it in esteem. So we're pussyfooted around this head um, because uh, Arrested Development season four has seemed to have divided people. Um, how do you feel about it now you've seen it all? Uh, I think if you'd asked me a few days ago, I probably would have been a little 
I wouldn't have been like down on it, but I think I probably would have been a little underwhelmed by it because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, as I say, the first half of it, it kind of struggles because it's got it's it was still really funny and there were a lot, it still had that sort of comic density and like foreshadowing, but because it wasn't paying off within an individual episode as was kind of the the thing that the original show did really well. Uh, it, it was less sort of satisfying just to watch individual episodes. You kind of felt as if everything was building towards something and it, like, you kind of get a little impatient waiting for it to kind of build to the thing. And then in the second half of the season, all the stuff starts paying off. And then I was just kind of like, I started to come round to it. Mm. And so by the end, I was just kind of like, I was thinking, you know, it was inconsistent, but all in all, I really, I did really like the stuff I really liked. But now I've watched it pretty much through a second time because I was thinking... You know, one of the things that was great about the original series was that you they, you got a lot out of rewatching it. You know, because there were jokes that would be foreshadowed like years in advance, and that you you would kind of start to pick up on little things the second time through. And on the second time through, a lot of the stuff that bothered me the first time didn't because I had a better sense of the chronology and I had a better sense of what it was building towards. Uh, and so, like this second time through, I'm thinking that it's probably better than the third season. In, right, right. In, compa- wow. in comparison to the original run, but as I say, like the, the third season's one that I have, that I think has a lot of issues. Chiefly, the sort of the whole Weaverson subplot, which doesn't quite work. Uh, and there was a lot of stuff that didn't work in this season, but nothing that kind of bothered me quite as much. Nothing that derailed it for you. No, nothing dera- derailed it. Certainly not on the second time through, because once you kind of get into the rhythms of it, because it has a very sort of staccato and uh, off kilter rhythm which I think uh, you really have to kind of adjust yourself to. And uh, I think you do have to basically watch it all the way through to kind of key into what it's got going on. Uh, How do do you feel about it? Well, I, like I said, I watched the first seven episodes straight through. And I have to admit that if it wasn't for the fact that we were doing this podcast, I would have stopped Right. Seven, and I wouldn't have carried on. Um, so I, because I, I didn't think it worked at all. I didn't think right. the, the first seven episodes didn't do it for me at all. Even the, even the bits that were were funny felt kind of hard work. They were laboured uh, gags. Then the next day, I, you know, I ploughed on through. Um, first three episodes back felt the same felt no different really um and then i got to the second job episode the tony wonder episode um and then everything clicks into place for me right and uh i felt that the last four episodes of the season uh were incredibly strong and uh some of those episodes the uh second the george michael um george maharis episode and um the Job Tony Wonder episode, I would probably rank up there with some of the best episodes of Rest of Development, full stop. Right. So I was very keen after it finished, and I felt like I'd just been watching this kind of wild jigsaw that someone had just kind of thrown in the air, and, and when the bits fall into place, the, the reward was, was great. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll kind of maybe watch a couple of those earlier episodes again to see if now, in the light of um, having seen the whole thing more of it kind of falls into place and 
I watched it again, and I finished it yesterday, the second time, no, this morning, second time round. Um, so yes, I have wasted 16 hours of my life uh, <laughs> this week watching Arrested Development twice. Um, and I still think the first 10 episodes are pretty poor. Um, right. And I, th I think that ev even the groundwork it lays is so clumsy and so kind of around the houses um, that it kind of, it kind of damages how the series I, I kind of perceive the series because you just can't watch any episodes on their own you can't mm. really watch them in isolation yeah um, so essentially what you've got is an eight-hour film of which the first two-thirds are you know really boring and I, I was I was watching it through yesterday with my kind of editor's hat on and I just kind of thought there's so much that could be hacked out of this that you just don't need and like there was a couple of bits where I noticed um there was, like I think I mentioned on Twitter yesterday, uh, Warden Gentles coming back with Carl Weathers and Andy Richter when uh, Michael puts the team together to start making this movie. Now, none of those characters are in it for any other reason other than fan service. <clears throat> Michael's goal is to get the signatures of his family and that's it that is that is the goal of the season that movie that's the move the story of the movie being made along michael one person needs to get eight other signatures that's all that needs to happen if you remove the whole uh, warden gentles carl weathers thing you lose nothing except mm. for a couple of good gags and my point is is that i laughed very much at watching james lipton trying to work his ipad it was hilarious but that took 15 minutes of screen time for one gag. Mm -hmm. And that was endemic, I thought, of the first seven episodes. I thought there were whole characters that just I didn't I didn't like at all. I felt like, um, oh God, before we kind of get too much into it, but the overall, the overall problem was that it was very bloated. Um, yeah, I, and, I definitely agree with that. And overall, and um, there, was, there were some issues that cleaned themselves up the second time round, such as the time compression. Like, when I watched it the first time round, it took me about five episodes when I was like, shit, five years has passed? <laughs> and so someone mentions it for the first time, and I was like, oh, and Lucille's been away for five five years? What? And then then at the end when uh, Anne says, oh, I've got a five-year-old, it hits you again, because it's so, you know, the, the, the time flipping is so kind of uh, uh, confusing that it, I very, very much struggled to kind of keep a, keep a hold of it. Um, but I felt like the real weak points were the Lindsay episodes... Uh, the George Senior episodes, and mm. I'm going to say this in um, kind of opposition to what a lot of people have said, a lot of uh, online commentators. Uh, the Lucille episode, I I didn't think was very good at all, um, and yeah, those those three are the the kind of the main offenders of of what didn't really work for me about the season. Um, whereas, as I said before, the George Michael and the the Job uh, storylines, along with the maybe episodes and some of the Michael storyline, I thought worked really, really well, um, but the others didn't. With leaves Tobias in the middle, this is me saying that I think that the character of Tobias, I know I'm just kind of spilling all this out there, but um, the character of Tobias I felt was betrayed in uh, this season because he finds out that people think he's gay, right? Which kills the joke for me, and that's what makes Tobias a funny character. And then he has to try and prove... Well, he does for a little bit, try and prove that he's not gay. And then he just forgets it. And then we move on and he does something else. He starts a musical. So, in, in a nutshell, <laughs> that's what I thought of uh, Arrest Development Season 4. 
Okay, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that it is too long in places. Like, the Lins the second Lindsay episode in particular is 37 minutes long. It's the longest episode of the season, and sort of when you start to get in, it basically feels like two episodes worth of story sort of awkwardly crammed in together. Um, mm. And you kind of get the feeling that that episode could have been two solid half hours or, or two solid 22 minutes or one really strong sort of 22 minutes thing. And on second time through, yeah, the George Senior episodes don't really improve a great deal, even though they do contain my favourite um, sort of guest player of the season, which is John Slattery as Dr. Mm-hmm. Norman, um, who's uh, who's great. Although, as, as was pointed out, um, I think by um, Todd Vanderwerf saying that the uh, of the AV Club, um, saying that he basically fills the role that used to be Oscar Bluth's role, which mm. is of the constantly high um, sort of man around the margins. Whereas the George part of the George senior plot, which doesn't really pan out into anything, is the idea that him and Oscar are sort of swapping personalities in some way. So it kind of gets hard to determine which of them is which. Um, and although it does make for one great uh, dirty gag, which is when Lucy all slaps him after they've had sex, and he says, "No, I when I said I wanted to, it felt good to get out of that hot sweaty hot box. <laughs> yeah, that sweaty hot that old sweaty hot box. I meant the uh, sweat lodge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was a great a great gag. Um, I think that yeah, those those ones are pretty weak. But I, t- I still think that, you know, watching it through a lot of the you, the, uh, the issues didn't bother me so much the second time around because I kind of got the sense of it was building towards something and I wasn't constantly trying to place all the pieces in my mind, which was what made the first one kind of not... Un- it, was, it, it never was, like, completely boring for me or, or not entertaining, but there was a kind of a part of it where you felt as if you were really having to work at it. To kind of keep all the pieces in play, and the second time through, it's it's less bothersome. And I'm sure yeah. it will be in subsequent sort of viewings of it. Mm. I, uh, Mitch Hurwitz has said that um, he wants to view this season of Arrested Development as uh, Act One of a movie. Is that right? Yeah, because he says he wanted to do the thing he wanted to do was a movie to follow up the original series, but then he realised there was just so much. Like the, the more time passed, the more he would have to try and cover in a movie of like explaining where everyone's been um, and what they've been up to in the sort of the preceding years, and then have to kind of then start telling a story. So he wanted this to act as kind of like the mini series explaining where everyone is, and then at the end of it, bringing everyone to sort of a crisis point where the the movie would kind of kick off. And so it, it seems that the 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 thing that would be the I assume would be the central plot line of a film would be the sort of who shot Mr. Burns-esque plot of, you know, what happened to Lucille Ostera, who at the end of the season disappears and there's a pool of blood and there's a sense that, you know, sort of one of sort of five or six characters could have s- killed her. Mm. That's the so, kind of, certainly the sense I got sort of the second time through is you start to realise that, you know, Michael and Lucille and, uh, you know, George Senior, um, they all kind of have something against her that could kind of drive them to kill uh, to kill um, Lucy Ostero, and you wonder if, uh, and you know, obviously, I think the explanation is going to be something else entirely, and that it's not going to involve anyone from the family, except maybe Lucille Bluth. Uh, mm. She could probably do it, um, but yeah, that seems to be what is kind of burning towards, and obviously, 
the sort of the crux of the whole thing is the final scene with George Michael um, realizing that his father has been seeing the same woman as him, and that they and sort of punching him in the face, which is kind of the emotional kind of uh, kind of breaking point of the whole season. Really, is the the what seems to be the complete disintegration of the sort of the the key relationship of the show in its early years. And you kind mm. of get the feeling that if they do do a movie, then that's the two kind of plot. The plot line will be sort of driven by the crisis of what happened to Lucille Ostero, what's going to happen with Lindsay's political campaign, and how is the family going to be sort of brought back together, having been sort of splintered. So here's here's my kind of thought of it because I watched it the second time around very much with it, only trying to kind of um, to see if I enjoyed it more, but also watching it with the fact that it's Act One of a movie. Mm-hmm in the back of my mind and I'll say that if it is act one of a movie it's a really lousy act because right. all, all, all Horowitz has to do is catch everyone up with what they've been doing set up um, two things which is uh, a whodunit mm-hmm. and the fact that they're having a movie made about their family and it takes forever to do that Yeah, I, I, I still I, I wonder whether and this is something that Horowitz has said he's he's actually quite keen on is someone doing a fan edit of of this to get it down and you know to oh, well I think he was saying he was keen on it to see if people would put it in the right order or mm. you know make uh, 22 minute episodes out of it and kind of stitch it all together I'd be really interested to see what a 10 episode half an hour each version of this would look like and I, I kind of think it would be a whole lot better if, if it's only serving one purpose which is to as I say catch everyone up set up two plots whilst being very funny and if you think that how much extraneous information there seemed to be in there, I wonder what that would look like. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I sort of saw as Fred as well, and I kind of think I would like to see that, because, as I say, I overall really, really enjoyed it, and certainly the second time through thought there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, really sort of great things about it that the first time through were obscured by the constant sense of, you know, trying to put a puzzle together. Which once mm. you've seen it, once you've seen it once, kind of dissipates, and you just kind of like, well, okay, so I know roughly when everything's happening now, so I can kind of just focus on the gags. Um, yeah, yeah, and but it, the thing that it really did need to do was sort of a, a stronger sort of sense of what the stakes were, because I think that's one of the things that this season doesn't have, which the other seasons did, because mm. in previous seasons it was the question of Michael keeping the family together, and this time it's kind of hard to tell what the stakes are because. It is kind of Michael trying to get the rights to everyone's life, the story, but as the season goes along, he just starts cutting people out of the movie when they piss him off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes less and less about that. And then there's that, all that stuff about the Blues wanting to build a war through Mexico, between uh, the US and Mexico, and then that falls by the wayside when they don't want it to happen. And yeah, the stakes of it are are really sort of confused and hard to discern. So I kind of, the second time through, I just kind of more enjoyed it as you know a chance to hang out with these characters again, and sort of enjoy the sort of the, the chaos of their lives, and also the the sort of the the wildly experimental nature of it, essentially deconstructing what the entire show was about by turning it from an ensemble comedy into just showing how awful each of the blues are when you take them away from the sort of the rest of their family. When you kind of release them into the world and you realise how much they ruin everyone's lives. Because the original series, they were still pretty awful, like all of them, with the exception of 
George Michael, who's, you know, sort of a sweet, a, a nice kid, as he's described in the first episode, in his uh, subtitle under his name. And in a sense, maybe, because she's completely amoral, but she's kind of happy with it. Like, she doesn't harbour any pretensions that she's not kind of a terrible person in the way that sort of Lindsay does. Um, mm. Or Job or anyone else. She, she seems to realise that she's not the nicest person in the world and everyone else kind of seems a bit oblivious about it. Um, and But they were always kind of aiming their awfulness at each other. And so they, you didn't get a sense of that they were causing that much harm. Whereas in this season, pretty much everyone who they kind of come into contact with ends up having their life sort of ruined in a big or small way. Mm. Which is quite um, interesting. What was the particular high point uh, for you in this season? Um, um, have you got any episodes? Of, they're hard to kind of say this time round which episodes stuck out because kind of don't work without the rest of them but but which ones which areas of it do you think were the best uh i did think that the maybe episode was kind of the strongest for me the maybe and the buster episode uh mm-hmm. the buster one had the best bit of sort of because what uh, i think people don't kind of say often enough about the original season it, series is that it was quite had a lot of political subtext to it because it was obviously about sort of entitled rich people there were lots of references to the bush family in there and there was lots of stuff about homeland security and sort of bush era america and Mm. um there wasn't so much of that this time around although there was a lot of stuff about you know the housing collapse and how essentially the um people like the blues basically come off fine because they get stimmy money as they describe it which makes for the great uh joke of um buster having a solid gold hook with loads of jewels on that keep falling off Mm. Um, but uh, the best kind of engagement with current politics was the the sequence of Buster working um, as a a drone pilot, and just the sort of the psychotic way in which he was like shoot destroying hospitals and killing nurses and bombing weddings. Did you see the gag on the outside when it cuts to the to the outside where the actual drone center is, and that it's basically like a mall or something, isn't it? But mm. then there's a big mm. sign, and it just says at the bottom. Uh, Doctor One Clinic. <laughs> I just thought that was a really nice gag. Uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's pretty great. Um, I also liked uh, the. That's just remind me. I really liked the Method One Clinic joke. Yeah. Very early yep. on. I, really, I just like the way that uh, Tobias kind of says it really quietly and in awe to himself. The Method One Clinic. Um, yeah. uh, so I really liked uh, that. I also liked the fact that they had Creed from the Office in it for no apparent reason. There were lots of Office alum in it uh, this season. Uh, I loved that all the stuff with Ron Howard and, uh, and Imagine. Um, particularly the uh, the off the design of their offices. You pointed this out to me, the fact that the doors above Brian Grazer's office has a sort of indentation of his hair and Ron Howard has a baseball cap just kind of jutting out over it. Yeah, I'm sure there are loads more gags like that. I actually felt like the Ron Howard stuff... Um, could have been scaled back a bit. Mm. Um, I felt like there were times, but then I think that the the times that I'm thinking of are the bits where I didn't think it worked. So like when he right. he, he took him into the Apollo landing, yeah, that was thing, to have that meeting. Um, I did like watching John Krasinski um, and talking when um, yeah they suggested that Jerry Bruckheimer was in a pirate ship, and yeah, he was I, just like, yeah, Jerry's not coming off the boat for this one. I did enjoy I that. Did. Um, I, I like the um, the the idea that the Jerry Bruckheimer um, sort of slogan for liking something is charring my tree, uh, in yeah. reference to the logo for the Bruckheimer. 
<laughs> Comp- yeah. And the, the imagines was uh, uh, this isn't uh, hitting it where the, where the drop hits the water, which was a very insider yeah. sort of uh, gag, but it was one that I liked quite a lot. Yeah, um, for me, I think that the, the the standout really was the Job Tony Wonder really odd gay sex. Uh, face mask storyline. Oh, sorry, I should say normal sex. Um, that I felt was the funniest episode uh, in that it contained um, most of my lols. Uh, it's also, like I said, the first episode where all the puzzle pieces start falling back together. Yeah, uh, yeah, that episode. I rewatched that episode um, today, in fact, and that was uh, that was a highlight for me. Just the un- the almost unfathomable weirdness of um, Job uh, of Will Arnett putting on a Ben Stiller mask and Ben Stiller putting on a Will Arnett mask and preparing to have sex with each other. Yeah. But also, it had a great reprise of I think the best sight gag of the of the the whole season, which is uh, I'm here, I'm queer. Now I'm over here. Now I'm over here. Yeah. <laughs> but now it was um, the, the whole uh, I'm here, I'm queer. Now I'm in a chair. <laughs> um, but also, I like the. The best part of that whole routine is when he does the everybody, everybody's gay, and then Ron Howard says, it was obvious how he did it. They were already gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, George Michael um, gets some really good business in mm. um, this whole season, I feel, and um, I wonder whether how much of an influence Michael Sarah had on that, because he was a writer on this, wasn't he? He was a, well, he's consulting producer down in the credits, but he was... Uh, uh, one of it was on the team of writers that they had. Um, he gets kind of most of the emotional stuff, doesn't he? Really? Yeah, I think it was in a large part kind of a an a, a quite cold and distant season emotionally. I mean, the original series wasn't like warm and fuzzy, but they would kind of have kind of nods to sentiment along the way. And um, what you kind of see with his stuff is he does. He's the one who obviously grows the most over the course of the season because. It shows him kind of coming into um, sexual maturity. It shows him trying to kind of distance himself from his dad, who he's obviously been very close to for uh, throughout his life, um, trying to create his own software, um, the most pointless piece of software imaginable. <laughs> yeah, but we don't um, find that out until much later. And that is that is one piece of the puzzle I didn't see coming at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was just like... Oh, and I think the the I think when I think about it now that th- those are the really really strong parts where you realise that all those ends of conversations weren't about privacy software they were about his privacy from his dad and then you know when the bit with him and Peahound when they're actually going through the old the the other alternative woodblock apps <laughs> is brilliant and he's like you know just tapping his screen and he just like looks at Peahound and says. Well, these are a fucking joke. <laughs> As if they have to try and top the, the most simplistic bit of software ever. But I, I kind of picked up on this, and no one seems to have mentioned it, but it seemed really obvious to me, whether it's so obvious that no one said it, that given how often people confuse Michael Sarah with Jesse Eisenberg, <laughs> was having Michael Sarah start a Facebook-like company a joke about that? I definitely think it, they definitely kind of played on the social network sort of thing, because they even had a courtroom scene in which... Uh, he and P Hound were being, uh, in which P Hound was suing him for the rights to the company, mm. saying that he got the financial outlay of paying for the other apps. Yeah. Uh, Ninety nine cents times three. Times three, yeah. Yeah, 
Um, and obviously, uh, George Michael being represented by Barry Zuckerberg, um, who's the worst fucking attorney. Yeah, he is. Um, well, that's a joke I really liked. The two great, the whole, I think the, uh, one of my favourite bits was the, the running gag with Barry Zuckercorn at the start of the fourth episode, he and Bob blah blah are, um, at a school and they're trying to get him off, uh, apparently breaking into a school, uh, into like doing something in a, in a, like a boys locker room or something. Mm. And, uh, blah, 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 lobs a law bomb. Um, (laughs) <laughs> to try and get him off and then later on and the whole thing is he's too short to reach it and then later on you see him like going to a shop and buying a, a ladder <laughs> yeah uh, cash no receipt that's yeah <laughs> he says that it's great um, e- everything just... involving uh, Henry Winkler and Henry Winkler's maritime law suit was uh, was a, a thing of pure beauty I really loved when um, they had the flashbacks to young Lucille and young, young kind of George and when they had the first flashbacks with young Barry, I was like, Jesus, they've cast this guy. He looks really <laughs> like Henry Winkler. And then I realised it was Henry Winkler's son, Max, who is, unsurprisingly, quite resembles his father quite heavily. Um, yeah. How did you feel the um, Kristen Wiig and Seth Rogen worked as um, characters, uh, as the casting of those two, given that in the old episodes of Arrested Development, whenever they had a flashback... They just put a sepia filter on it, and they put a wig on George, basically, is what happened. So how do you feel about them bringing in, um, let's not beat around the bush, let's say they shoehorned in two Hollywood A-listers <laughs> to play it. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, I think that Kristen Wiig did a really good job at, at a sort of Lucille impression. Like, I didn't think, watching it, that that's Christy, uh, Kristen Wiig. I just kind of thought, oh, it's, it's young Lucille, and I thought she really got it. Not so much Seth Rogen, who I thought was good, but at no point did I not stop thinking that it was Seth Rogen, yeah. <laughs> just in Arrested Development for some reason. Um, uh, he he did have the the he did have one moment where he did really resemble, which was when he says, "Where where the fuck are my socks?" <laughs> yeah, which he really mastered there. And then they go into the funny little Grinch parody where they create create Cinco de Cuatro, mm. which is itself a great gag. Yeah, um, but yeah, he, the, the Christy Wig, I felt sort of kind of fell into the role very naturally she's very good at inhabiting characters Seth Rogen is someone who has a very sort of specific and limited range and he is not really able to hide the fact that he has the most one of the most distinctive voices in Hollywood Mm. do you know how I felt about it how same right yeah same same definitely same um I I felt like they worked who else did you feel like had a cameo that worked you mentioned earlier uh John Slattery um i felt the same as you that i really enjoyed him while he was on camera but then whilst i was watching it a second time around with my editing hat on i was thinking if we just had oscar as that character yeah it wouldn't we wouldn't lose anything other than the fact that we could say hey cool that was john slattery yeah although i did really love the scene of him in the mexican office where he had all those like just throwaway lines where he said he's like they say touching this part uh, leads to sexual arousal and he goes that's my penis he goes you don't have to tell me and then he's <laughs> just like he's looking at his watch he says why are you looking at your second hand and he goes oh this isn't my office <laughs> and it's just yeah. a little throwaway gag and then they have to run away at the end so he had lots of I think every pretty much every second of screen time he was in was gold but yeah it, it kind of felt like it wasn't a hundred percent necessary. Um, I really like Terry Crews. Uh, I love Terry Crews in general. I think he's a, just a, a wonderfully charismatic guy, and I think he had a lot of fun with that character of mm-hmm. Herbert Love. Um, especially when you start watching it again, you realise that he 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 is thinking that um, 
Lindsay is a prostitute, and obviously she is a prostitute, although she doesn't realise it. Um, and just it puts a lot of his weird conversational ticks into uh, into context. Uh, but I, I really, really enjoyed him. Um, Maria Bamford, I thought I, I enjoyed quite a lot as uh, Tobias's love slash Sue Storm um, slash meth addict. Um, who had a, there were lots of good get- jokes about her being an actress, particularly the line um, she used to be in movies. But you know with how it is with actresses. Eventually, the teeth go. <laughs> the teeth go. I think there was a really good one where it showed her making straight bait, and it said um, she made these kind of porn films. It said she made four of these, and then after lunch, she made three more. Yeah, I thought that was really good. I liked the uh, the John Beard stuff. I liked the the idea that they set up very early on. I didn't get this until the second time through that. The station has had cut cutbacks, so he's having to host every show. Yep, and he's uh, doing he's doing the airport um, thing. He's doing the petrol pump um, every time he quits. Yeah, every yeah, every time he quits. Um, in terms of uh, perhaps not bad cameos in the fact they didn't do a good job, but uh, Marky Bark's character, I have to say, not a high point for the rest of the development. Yeah, that was. It didn't really amount to anything. I mean, there were some good jokes with his face blindness, but it felt like it felt like the sort of thing like with Charlie's Thrones being mentally challenged. Mm. Uh, it seemed like the sort of thing that they shouldn't have revealed straight away. That it, it seemed like one of those things that should have been treated with where he would say really ambiguous things, and then eventually at the end it turns out he can't recognise faces, and you just kind of go, oh. That makes sense. So having, so yeah, I think that the idea of him having face bindless being um, advertised right from the top just kind of seemed to kind of take the air out of it a little bit. I felt like um, with the uh, face blindness gag the second time round, I felt like they really hammered it, and also didn't stick to their own rules. Like mm. the, I think that there was a bit of the uh, um, when like. Uh, was it Lindsay kept coming in to the house when he was building the bomb and mm-hmm. he didn't recognise it was her even when she was talking to him. But then yeah. later on, he recognises her voice straight away yeah, like when yeah. she bumps into him on the street. And it, it was, when I watched it the second time round, that was the gag that seemed to go on and on and on forever. Uh, yeah. Whereas in the first time round I watched it, it was the um, uh, four-person housing situation <laughs> vote um, with a no talking pack before you leave rule that I thought went on forever and the second time round I thought that, that was comic genius yeah the best part about it is the way that it keeps going at the airport and everyone there completely understands what he's talking about yeah. and then just points out all the flaws in it to it which he didn't realise at the time <laughs> I, I just love I just love everyone the the way it's re- uh, sold by P. Hound um, George Michael and, and maybe when, when they just kind of put their finger to their lips and just shake their head and it's just it's just perfect that little bit, and it really works. It doesn't work so well later when they bring the twins into it, and the twins kind of multiply. It doesn't work quite so well. Yeah, yeah, that bit doesn't really kind of that goes on too long. And also, as far as the the voting goes, I like the capper to it that he then uh, George Michael voices the the sane opinion that maybe they should get one extra person in, and mm. then everyone turns against him. <laughs> yeah, it's a good that's a good topper, but yeah, the sort of the build up for that one's not as as sort of meticulously uh, done as the as it is in the uh, four-person housing situation vote. Yeah. Um, in terms of how it went down, I have to say that, like, I was kind of starting to worry, actually, because I kind of didn't 
start it right away and there's quite a few people on Twitter who had kind of just got straight into it first thing in the morning because over here it dropped at like 8am yeah. and people were just kind of going straight into it that, that I, I don't really know how much you saw of this oh, this is a long way around of me telling you this but um, how you saw of this because when you were in America but uh, even the actor Kevin Eldon he mm-hmm. had a TV show uh, that started on BBC Two. He got his own show finally, and when it was coming up to the show airing, basically anyone who was anyone in comedy who was on Twitter was saying, "Kevin Eldon's got his own show. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. Everyone watch it. He deserves to be supported. He's an amazing actor, and he's you know so good or whatever." And this continued literally right up to the minute before the show when people were saying, "In 60 seconds, Kevin Eldon's show is going to be on." You guys, everyone tune in, and then as soon as it aired and as soon as it finished, just every, no, nothing, just complete silence. And the reason it was because the show wasn't particularly good. And oh, that's a ev- shame. Everyone loved Kevin Eldon, and everyone loved um, what he does and everything. And whilst there were good bits in the show, it really was kind of you know not quite the uh, the, the piece of work that everyone thought it was going to be. Mm. And I kind of had this, a similar reaction actually to this because I kind of follow on Twitter a lot of you know, real Arrested Development nuts and it was just silence just no one saying anything and then I remember someone came out and just said oh well it was a bit kind of ropey but it's picking up and then I was like this can't be good and then I kind of, mm. when it launched in America it wasn't even trending on Twitter and I was just like people either are, are so into it because it's that good or they're not into it and then when I, that's, I think that's when I got to when I was watching it myself when I got around to the first seven episodes that's the point where I was like, this this could be bad. <laughs> Maybe they've genuinely done it and it's bad. And then obviously I carried on and it and it wasn't. But um, the response on the on the kind of immediacy was not very kind of well, it wasn't overwhelming at all. Yeah, I think it is the problem with binge watching something is that it 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 someone um, compared it to eating too much sugar, too many sugary sweets. This same person also said that it was the Ulysses of of sitcoms, which so take that first uh, analogy of a pinch of salt. Mm. Um, uh, I, I I'd much preferred the analogy that someone said that it was the infinite jest of sitcoms, which I'll come back to in a minute. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's the sort of show like comedy in general is not something that I, I think benefits from sort of binge watching because eventually your face just starts to hurt from laughing or you just kind of get a little sick of the rhythms of it of seeing the same stuff repeated over and over again. So I think people watching it in a single eight-hour chunk probably isn't the best way to watch it, really. Mm. I I do think that there are... Like, certainly watching it at a more leisurely pace the second time round, over, well, leisurely, over sort of five days instead of over two. Um, You know, it it does get... It seems as if it's trying a little less hard and you don't get so kind of... uh, the, the, The narrator doesn't seem so intrusive or if you are watching it in bits as opposed to in a single eight how thing where it's like uh, just hearing Ron Howard every sort of 10 seconds mm. which can get a bit grating after a while although I do think they kind of lent on the narrator a little too much this time around although he was still funny I think Ron Howard's uh, work as the sort of the narrator on Arrested Development will go down as some of his finest work as a as an actor yeah um, I think he's a great he's still great I think that they overdid a little gag when he would say something and then it was that was the exact dialogue that someone else was saying in the bit he was introducing. Yeah, that you do notice. That's another thing is like gags like that that they do several times when you watch like seven or eight episodes in a row. 
you realise how often they're repeating stuff. And they do that in the original show as well. But, you know, but when you're watching that week to week or when you weren't being sort of compelled by the idea that it's on Netflix and they're all available now, you have to watch them all now, then you, it was it, the, the effects were kind of uh, mollified a little bit. Yeah. Um, we must say this because some of our fan base have demanded it. Um, but someone pointed out on our Facebook that... Um, could we talk about the sound mixing um, because it was a bit of a mess and there were bits where you couldn't hear things and I have to agree there is parts of this where um, the music's too loud or the dialogue's too low or you know it just it just doesn't come out of the mix very clean and it's some, what's trying to cut through just isn't and some jokes are lost mm, yeah that's some, there was definitely jokes I noticed the second time round and I think it was literally because the first time through I couldn't hear them and mm. I was kind of paying attention to the... To, uh, and the second time round, you're looking for... With Arrested Development, you're looking for jokes you missed the first time. And I think it was just that sometimes they were lost in the mix. And I think that is, unfortunately, a sign of how late into the... Um, into the production pro... Into the post-production process actually ran prior to them releasing them. Because um, Mitch Hurwitz was giving interviews about it, like popping out of the editing room... Uh, after 18 hour sessions sort of just in the last couple of weeks mm. so i think that the post-production process went almost until the episodes were live on air which happens in tv quite a lot of the time anyway but you do kind of notice it but i think that that does kind of play a part in um explaining how sort of some of the technical aspects of it are a bit ropey in that regard and certainly the sound there are, there are also times where stuff clearly sounds ADR'd and it's over it, it's really distracting how it's obvious that the dialogue being spoken doesn't match up to the way that people's lips are moving mm. uh, where he's clearly trying to kind of piece together the story in post and hoping that it'll all make sense which I think is also probably explains a lot of the bloat like not having the strict limits of having to make room for adverts and stuff mm. probably has kind of contributed to a lot of the bloat and a lot of the weirdness of the the sound mixing process i was um really looking for green screen as well during the whole mm. thing because uh it was announced well not announced but it was kind of mentioned beforehand which is something that people hadn't really thought of that without the cast altogether you know people were green screened in into certain scenes and that instantly filled me with dread because there's one thing to kind of suck the life out of a out of a uh, a performance is to have it when you're playing it to a stick with a face on it mm. um but I only really noticed one, which was really badly done, which was the Lucille versus Lucille in the Crab Shack um, yeah. thing. That I mean, that just looked awful. And I don't know whether that was a, a bit that was changed late on or something, but that just looked terrible. Yeah, there was a nice um, gag about the green use of green screen in the first George Senior episode, which is where... George and Oscar are both going into the sweat box and George says, uh, I'll sit opposite you so it doesn't look bad. Yeah. yeah Which yeah, I thought yeah. was a nice little touch. But yeah, that that was something I was also sort of dreading because, you know, if you listen to the Hurwitz uh, talking about the production schedule, which sounds like it would have been insane, like having to film like one scene with um, Jason Bateman in June and then the other half of it with uh, Jeffrey Tambor in December... And stuff like that, which is stuff that you would expect, you know, in a lot of sort of effects-heavy blockbusters, people do that sort of stuff all the time, where people aren't on the same set and they have to do stuff like months apart. But on a sitcom, it's not something you really expect that people have to do. 
Mm. Um, or, or just TV in general, except for that weird episode of The Sopranos after Livia dies. With the CGI um, head, which is... Yeah. Yeah, it's a Cre- point. Creepy. Yeah, that's, that's creepy as fuck. Uh, nothing in, in Arrested Development was that creepy, uh, except for all the Buster Lucille stuff, which is always creepy. But I did like the whole subplot of Buster making a, a mother doll. That was... Uh, that was wonderfully deranged. Yeah, quite a lot of um, Hitchcock <laughs> references in that, and my favourite gag was when he says it was like that Gus, uh, that Vince Vaughn movie, Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was um, a good gag. Uh, yeah, in re- terms of reception, how it's gone down, obviously it's clear how the two of us feel about it. Um, it's received kind of mixed positive reviews, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's obviously the response is less uh, positive than the original run. Which obviously enjoyed a great, uh, great critical acclaim, pretty much across the board. Even when it didn't have, um, when it didn't have uh, sort of popular support, but um, critically, I think it is oh, it is more positive than negative. But there is a a fairly large sort of proportion who are um, either outright negative or are just kind of sort of more lukewarm about it. But there are definitely a lot of people who would like, like sort of like me and more towards the positive end of it and admire its the ambition of the storytelling and sort of how sort of weirdly experimental it proves to be. Mm. Um, and you know, but there are also there's lots there's a, a kind of a greater spectrum of opinions this time around than there was in the original run. Yeah, I'd like to put myself in the camp that admires the ambition, but I just kind of uh, don't quite so much admire the execution. Yeah, yeah, I think there are lots of issues with the uh, execution that are, are kind of hard to argue against really but um i still think that there's for me there's so much stuff there that i like that even like that that they kind of uh, more than adequately outweighs the stuff that doesn't work for me yeah um and netflix have come out the ceo uh, reed hastings uh, has come out and put his cards on the table uh, very early on by saying that they will happily make more if um, Horowitz and the cast and crew want to make more. Um, Netflix reported they don't do viewer stats. Uh, I didn't. I don't know why they don't. I think they said that they'd like to do them as a year rather than who was watching it on this day because people mm. can ingest them whatever they want. But um, the um, Netflix subscription service went up by eight percent in the week before um, the show aired. Um, but um, and they also estimate that 36% of all devices that were connected to Netflix um, on the Sunday watched the show, which is pretty amazing if you think of how many subscribers they've got. Um, yeah. But the other thing is that after the first kind of start of review started to come back, um, the Netflix stock price dropped because the reviews weren't overwhelmingly positive. So um, how would you like to see... And Horowitz so far has been silent. The cast have been... Uh, silent on you know what they're going to do um do you think they should come back for another season do you think they should do a movie i would prefer them to come back and do another season than a movie because i think that a movie would just i think the movie from a production point of view would probably be cleaner to do because you could sign everyone to contracts and get them all to kind of do it at a certain time and get more of the, the dynamic stuff but i just don't think it's a style that works particularly well for um for a, for a movie but another season of ter- television would um possibly work better than this one because now all the five years of expositions out the way they can just set it within a certain time frame apart from the odd sort of flashback which they've always done anyway mm. um 
I think that a second season, you know, with uh, Hurwitz would have the... He's obviously got the feedback now, and I think, you know, he's he seems like the sort of person who would uh, take on what people are saying about it and, and maybe would look to try and make something a little sleeker and, and sort of would try and improve upon the experience of this time around, maybe uh, try and... Also, I think he would have more of a definite sense of how to do it, because the sense I get from reading about it is that the concept of the season changed in the editing, Mm. and that's why it went from 10 episodes to 15, because he kind of realised he had all of this stuff and he didn't know entirely what to do with it, and he had to try and reshape it all in the editing room, and I think that if they were to do a fifth season with Netflix, I think he would have a better... You would hope that he and his writers would have a better sense of how to kind of do it. Yeah. And that they could they could kind of make it sleeker and leaner and just kind of sort of focus in on it and stuff. That's the stuff that I think would be uh, would be interesting. And also I think, you know, the, the, the thing I find um, kind of funny about the return of it is that his, uh, Arrested Development was cancelled for being too complex and for not having likeable enough characters. And it's come back... And it's even more complex, and the characters are even less, less likable. Yet mm. it's playing to the it's playing to the biggest audience the show ever has. Because you know, if thirty percent of the twenty million people, uh, twenty nine or whatever it is million people who own who are on Netflix watched it, then that's like ten million people watching it all in a single day, which is you know more than the show ever had in its lifetime. Yeah, I think the next chapter of the story. Uh, of getting everyone back together and trying to rebuild the connections would be inherently more uh, fun and lighthearted and less dark than this season. So I think there'd be more there'd be more potential for there to be heart and sentiment and the stuff that makes it kind of you know sort of more more enjoyable. Like I I liked this season as I've said, but I think it was very dark and very sort of bracing in a way that the, the previous seasons weren't. Mm. I have to say though that you said it was a cold season. And I completely agree with you, and and that was something that kind of didn't chime with me. But the the very last act of the of the whole show really probably had the pun intended biggest emotional punch of uh, of any of the rest of the development, really. Absolutely. I mean, like as soon as I finished watching it, that was pretty much what I wrote on on Twitter. I said that it was a, a gut punch, which is incorrect because it was a face punch. Mm. Um, but you know it really was because you've you've spent a whole season with the characters, but obviously really we've spent ten years with these characters from when the show originally debuted, and the the sort of the only thing that's kind of remained constant through then is the relationship between george michael and and uh, Michael and this kind of really loving relationship between a father and son and you know that those two punches at the end are you know they kind of shatter that, and I think that that is um heartbreaking in a way, and I think that gives it an interesting place for them to continue if the show does continue as either a movie or another season it's a good place to kind of jump off from yeah I'd recommend if you watch it again uh, when you get around to watching that um, that last episode again is is just how immaculately that scene is played by those two actors and also <clears throat> just before it cuts to black watch what George Michael's doing because it's just oh, it's heartbreaking it's great um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say that you know they've definitely gone out, leaving me wanting more. Definitely, mm. um, and I think I hope that they go back and, like you say, with with the the kind of notes that I've given, <laughs> 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 not that anyone else has given, but you know, go, gone back and I, I'm sure Horowitz and everyone is is back looking at it and thinking, yeah, it, you know, perhaps time was a factor, perhaps 
you know, like you say, they didn't quite know what they were doing with it all. Um, and to come back and make a fifth season that's, you know, it's just all payoff. They've put in the hard work of doing a season which is basically setting up so much stuff, five years in nine characters' lives separately. Um, you know, you can have an awesome ten-hour or eight-hour kind of uh, payoff in the next season. Yeah, and I think it also would help that, you know, the, the thing that needs to be bared in mind about this season is it is basically unprecedented to make a show entirely for Netflix in the way that this has been done. Because, like, obviously House of Cards and Hemlock Grove did it, but they're kind of shows that existed as ideas for shows before they were pitched to Netflix, and they both have very traditional um, structures as uh, seasons of television, whereas this is unlike any sort of TV series that's ever been gone before. The closest I can think of would have been, like, the third series of The League of Gentlemen, which kind of has the same sort of idea of just following individual characters and then leading to a crucial event, mm. um, but was in no way as complex uh, a puzzle piece as this. You know, the back to the sort of the Infinite Jest comparison. Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace is a novel that's told out of sequence and you don't really know when anything's happening because each chapter is named after the year it's happened but the year it's happened is named after a product and it doesn't tell you in what year these years are ordered until about 200 pages into the book right so it's like it's a really if you you spend ages trying to figure it out and then you get to the page where it explains everything and then you kind of turn the corner of the page down and constantly leap back and forth for the rest of the book to keep everything in your mind but when you kind of finish it and do what I did, which was essentially you finish reading the last chapter and then you turn back to the first chapter and everything suddenly makes sense. Mm. That was the same feeling I had with Arrested Development all the way through is that like gradually piecing everything together. And as soon as I watched the last episode, I went back and watched the first episode again and suddenly everything seemed to fall into place. And I think that that's um, the kind of that that's kind of a structure that's never really been tried on television before. And, you know, that's for good and ill, you know, there's lots of weird things in it uh, structurally that the show has has hurt the show for a lot of people and might, you know, sort of hinder it going forward. But I think having done it once, you know, if they were to do it again, they've learned they can, you know, either try the same thing again and make it sleeker or they can go, well, we don't have to do that this time around because everyone knows where everyone is and we can just kind of make a really funny season of television. Mm. Uh and I think that it's good, it's interesting to see them try something new, but, uh, and, you know, either try and improve it or just kind of like say, right, okay, that's out of the way, let's do something that, uh, you know, is more within our wheelhouse. I have to say that um, as as problematic as the structure has been for me, I would have been far more disappointed if they'd have just done the same thing, 22 million oh, yeah. episodes. I would have been hugely disappointed um, because that would have just been the ultimate fan service. Yeah, and that was the thing I liked about it as well, is that there were lots of references to the old show, but, you know, the old show always made references to itself anyway, so it just felt like a natural evolution. And the stuff that was done as sort of fan service stuff was worked in sort of subtly. It's like the first time when um, Michael has sex with Rebel, played by Isla Fisher, in the photo booth, and they look at the photos later. And there's a sheep. Uh, yeah, there's a sheep there, and it's like it's like a half a second thing, and it's a really funny thing. But they've also said that there was a sheep in the bar anyway, so it makes sense. And when Job kind of does his, he has a he starts doing the with the man in the six thousand dollar suit. Come on, you know that mm. that whole thing. But he does it, and he's just having a complete mental breakdown. 
Oh, it's just really sort of weird and strange. Um, and like the stuff like when they go to the Holy Eternal um, Church of the uh, Holy Eternal Rapture. Yeah, and then it says her, and then there's a shepherd's crook, so it looks like a question mark. Just kind of there hanging in the background. It's just a nice little. Uh, I-, I liked like that it was background touches like that. It didn't feel to me like they were constantly going, remember this thing from the first season? Ha 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 ha. Yeah. Which, you know, they could easily have done and it would have been, like, hugely disappointing. Whereas this is trying something new and maybe not working and disappointing in a different way for people, but, you know, at least it's not, at least it's not, like, trying the same thing and having people kind of go, oh, maybe I didn't like the show as much as I thought. Yeah. We'll wrap things up now. Um, But we'll wrap things up with uh, our favourite gags from the show. Uh, My favourite gag... Um, was, as I say, I was very enamoured with the uh, Job-Tony Wonder storyline, but my mm-hmm. favourite thing about Job um, in this season is um, the use of the uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, The Sound <laughs> of Silence, and um, they use it every time he kind of starts to glaze over and realise how lonely it is, but it's it's a visual gag and a sound gag that works really well. Um, but what I like, my favourite gag in the entire season, is at Cinco de Quattro, where he's talking to Anne, and they're talking about the fact that she's got a five, they've got a five-year-old son, and then the first uh, kind of guitar line of "Sound of Silence" starts up again, but then some horns go over the top of it, and you realise <laughs> that a Mexican band behind is playing, and Job goes, "Oh no, that's not us." And <laughs> that gag every time, I say every time, the two times that I've seen it um, has made, given me the biggest belly laugh. Uh, I think my favourite one was the all the stuff with the army and the don't ask, don't tell being repealed. So suddenly everyone in the army is gay. Yeah. And there's two great <laughs> jokes from that. One is um, the army men saying like, "These, you know, he's gay, he's gay," and the guy goes, "Bye." Bye. Goes, oh no, he's. He goes, "No, he's bi." Oh no, I'm going home. I'm gay. He <laughs> <laughs> just walks out, which is such a lovely bit of um, wordplay. But I think my favourite one is Lucille testing the army man <laughs> to see if he is in fact gay and he says she says who did such and such replacing company he goes I don't know I know who he thought he, thought was, he replacing. was replacing <laughs> and then the, the thing is that I loved that joke the first time round but I loved it even more when it sells Lucille's reactions because then as soon as he says it she's like oh my god something really bad happened <laughs> she must have known something bad happened to him um, but yeah those yeah there, there are going to be gags there like I say when it hits the heights um, this season it you know can be considered with some of the best stuff um, that they've done, I think, and um, uh, you know those favourite jokes we picked out will probably change tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, I definitely, I have already started using do a something search for it with people in daily conversation. So I think that that was same, the other thing. Same, yeah. same. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start saying same. Uh, <laughs> um, which I think was a great gag um, but yeah uh, so that was Arrested Development season 4 if you didn't know what to think of it now you do um, so uh, we'll be so back. now you're conflicted <laughs> now you're, you're hugely conflicted <laughs> but uh, I, I, I would say that like you know I actually prefer season 3 to this right. um, but I acknowledge that both have their problems um, yeah. whereas you're slightly warmer on the scale than me you big fanboy <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay so uh, we'll be back soon with something else and uh, in the meantime it's goodbye from me Steve Holt <laughs> oh hey. well, he's, uh, what, what, what was the explanation about why Steve Holt looks like he's 150 years old I don't know that time's just not been kind to that guy because he's, um, clearly, he's clearly wearing a wig and that, that calls back to a gag in season 3 where he's saying to Job oh is that what my hair's going to look like when I'm older 
<laughs> but it didn't explain why he was a hundred pounds heavier and looked about forty-five. I just think that's the way that guy looks. Um, he's just like he's just uh, he went out of puberty and has just put on a load of weight, and it's a shame. But I did like that was another thing I liked. I did like the Steve Holt storyline that they brought that guy back and they just made him even sadder. Because <laughs> yeah. the, the Steve Holt Steve Holt had a sadness to him, like the fact that he'd been in high school for like five years. Mm. Uh, and just kept doing it, but this was just uh, and like revealing that he had to fight with his dad on his birthday and stuff. It was just, yeah. They I liked that they brought him back, and it wasn't just fan service. It was just kind of like, yeah, things have been really bad for Steve Holt in the last five years. Yeah, real bad. Um, so yeah, and it's uh, goodbye from me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, it's goodbye for you. So uh, yep, yeah, see you. Bye. Bye.